Welcome, beautiful people to Camp Koji. My name is Jordan. Thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest game in the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk a bit about the Game Awards happening this week, Battlefield 2042, and this announcement that we got last week about PlayStation finally coming up with some sort of answer to Xbox's Game Pass. But first, a quick update on Activision Blizzard. So a right-wing activist group called the National Legal and Policy Center has written to Coca-Cola's chairman and CEO James Quincy demanding they seek the resignation of Bobby Kotick from their board of directors. Also on top of that, state treasurers from California, Massachusetts, Illinois, Oregon, Delaware and Nevada are calling on Activision Blizzard to take more serious measures in addressing ongoing high-profile investigations and lawsuits about the company's troubling culture. According to Axios, said treasurers have asked to meet with the board members at Activision Blizzard by December 20th, threatening action against the company if it does not comply. So there's obviously more and more pressure being put on Activision Blizzard, kind of coming from all different sides. Uh, I mean, look, when you have a (laughs) right-wing activist group calling you out, that probably means you did something uh, really wrong uh, for for them to want Bobby Kotick out um, as the leader of Activision. And I think I brought this up the last time I spoke about it, which is, it kind of does feel like it's trending towards that point where the board at Activision Blizzard is going to really have to understand that this is not going to be, or Bobby Kotick himself has become, uh, rightfully so, the poster child for everything that's going wrong right now with Activision Blizzard. And it's not just these allegations, it's not just, the lawsuit, it's not just that Washington Post article, it's kind of everything that's going wrong with Activision as a company right now. As I brought it before, it's not like Activision is at a point where they're doing so amazingly great as a company. Their stock has um, gone under $60 a share. I'm not sure where it's at right now. I think it's around $56 a share or 58 around there the last time that I saw it. So there, there are kind of multiple reasons why Bobby Kotick should not be leading this company anymore. And it, it's almost like, um, you know, having pictures of the devil or something like that. Like, I, I, I don't know how, I, actually, I, I kind of know how Bobby Kotick still has a job at this point because most any other company would have already gotten rid of this guy and, you know, understood that they have to put uh, their profit over any individual person or group of people, you know, profit comes first. The fact that they are consistently defending this man um, is proof that uh, either they feel undying loyalty to Bobby Kotick because maybe he was responsible for putting them in the position that they're in or, Bobby Kotick is something against them. I don't know. You know, uh, th- this guy just should not be leading this company anymore. And or even if 
you still want to keep Bobby Kotick around, you sort of remove him from the top of the company and stick him somewhere else or something like that. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Um, on top of that, sticking with Activision Blizzard, last week, contract testers at the Call of Duty Studio Raven Software were told that the studio would face layoffs on January 28th of next year. Source familiar with the goings-on at the company confirmed to Kotaku that for the next few days in early December, the QA team would be meeting one-on-one with management individually to learn if they were out of a job. Um, According to Austin O'Brien, a community manager for Call of Duty, the quality assurance team from Raven Software were promised raises for months by Activision. It turns out these raises had an asterisk attached to them. The plan, as our source tells it, so Activision will absorb some contract testers from Raven Software, hire some testers permanently. But the vast majority of the developers at Raven will be out of work. The workers retaining jobs will indeed be promoted from $17 an hour to $18.50 an hour, alongside improved benefits and quarterly bonuses. Promises of raises and other benefits that never arrive are a well-known tactic within the industry as a means of retaining contract workers hoping to transfer into more full-time positions. And Pretty much every outlet that reported on the story happening at Activision brought up or wanted to remind us how much money Activision or how much money the latest Call of Duty has brought in, especially Warzone. I think bringing in over a billion in revenue throughout the year. Um, And the fact that this is just another sort of massive layoff happening within Activision, which is definitely not something new for Activision as a publisher. This is kind of just another signal as to why it's so important for the gaming industry to unionize is the fact that a lot of companies sort of use these empty promises, almost like dangling a carrot by telling QA testers like, yeah, just stick with us. We'll make you a permanent part of the team. You know, this happens a lot within our industry, especially because it's one that makes such heavy use of contractors. So people that are, you know, it's right there in the name, contracted for some temporary work that is supposed to end at some point in time. And, you know, these contract workers are usually lied to and told, yeah, just stick with us, keep working hard there. You know, there's a chance that there can be a permanent position here for you, even if it's just a completely empty promise you know no one's really holding you know the company or their management responsible for not being able to fulfill that type of promise which is why it's so important for employees to be part of a union because that is a body that can hold an employment accountable for a lot of different things so for them to be promised this and i'm sure a lot of qa testers probably believing that this may happen you know We're now a few weeks away from Christmas and a lot of people are now out of a job and there probably was, you know, very highly likely that there never was a job uh, ever. So, you know, Activision definitely fighting for its position as the worst company of the year. It's pretty much down to them and Take-Two at this point. They're really, um, we're really getting down to the nitty gritty now that the year is almost over. It's like, well, who wants it? Who wants it more? You know, which one of you two companies wants to be known as the worst company in our industry 
before uh, the year 2021 is over, but that's really where we're trending. Our first story of the week deals with the Game Awards and this controversy that's been uh, surrounding it last week, and it is attached to Activision Blizzard. So Jeff Keighley was interviewed by the Washington Post last week and was asked about Activision Blizzard's involvement in the ceremony, to which he replied, quote, we want to support employees and developers. We have to think very carefully about how to proceed here. And he added that he supported people coming forward with their stories, but also didn't want to diminish developers' opportunities to spotlight their game. So as soon as this happened, there was a little bit of a backlash online. It started trending on Twitter, sort of this call for Jeff Keighley to take a moment during this week's Game Awards to address the Activision Blizzard controversy. And I had tweeted out about this saying that Jeff Keighley historically within our industry has been one of the most influential figures within the game industry. It's it's sort of not even close. I, I don't think there's a journalist that can match the amount of influence Jeff Keighley has over our industry. And that is a position that Jeff earned for himself. The man works extremely hard. I've had the opportunity to meet and speak with Jeff on multiple occasions during my time with uh, Nintendo. He's a a straight shooter, you know, as as straight as they come, to, to be honest with you. And he is a person that, once again, definitely, like, I don't feel like there's an argument in terms of how much Jeff loves this industry. Like I said, the the guy works very, very hard behind the scenes. And I think when you look at our industry within the last few years, there's sort of, he sort of has been a little bit of this driving force behind a lot of the innovations in terms of live streams and you know even just the way the information gets out there we think about you know yeah summer game fest was not like the greatest neatest sort of way to deliver content during um um you know when a lot of us were in lockdown but it was something and you know he was correct in his assessment when he was working with e3 in terms of e3 having to grow and 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 serve a much more digital audience versus a physical one and obviously one of the biggest projects that he's worked on was game awards and you know jeff has been uh, you know main producer i guess you could say behind game awards ever since spike tv um that was where the Game Awards first lived. And, you know, once it was removed from Spike TV, I I feel like he was able to deliver on his original vision, which was turning the Game Awards into a much more serious, not so much tongue-in-cheek look at our industry, a much more serious moment where where we can, you know, celebrate the individuals that work very, very hard to deliver a lot of the games that we love every single year. So with that being said, 
I've noticed that one thing about Jeff Keeley is he's not really the type of person to pick sides, I guess. And I guess you can take that statement and you can look at it from two angles. Maybe it's negative from your assessment. Maybe you understand why. Uh, I, I wouldn't say maybe you look at it as a positive, but I think you have to look at it from a standpoint of understanding why Jeff Keel is the type of person to almost, I guess, sit on the fence a bit. Like I said, you're talking about a person that has over a million followers on um, on Twitter. And I think that's the reason why Jeff Kilo is the type to speak a little bit more in generalizations um, as opposed to anything else. Now, I remember speaking up about the year 2020, the fact that Jeff Keeley is one of the most, once again, influential voices in our industry when it came to the Black Lives Matter movement. And the way that it, it, it sort of, um, I guess, the way that we decided to sort of apply the Black Lives Matter movement to our industry and the fact that there was such a huge lack of Black voices in terms of media personality, in terms of just characters, main characters and stories, um, developers, artists, front-facing developers, artists and storytellers was something that we greatly lack within our industry. Jeff was completely quiet about it. And I remember it was something that really bugged me because I was like, man, you know, you don't really have to say much, but you have, I always like to put it in the context of stages, speakers, and microphones. That's, I, I always love to use that context in terms of the influence that a lot of individuals hold within various industries, right? When you think about this platform, Kent Koji, when you think about my personal Twitter, it's, it's like I have of I have a microphone and like a tiny Bluetooth speaker and I'm on a corner somewhere in Brooklyn and I'm trying to talk to people about video games, right? <laughs> as opposed to Jeff Keeley, who has satellites, speakers as tall as buildings. And when he says something, he's able to reach millions and millions of people at the same time. When you build that type of stage and platform, then you are able to make this decision in terms of how can I use this platform to make things better for the industry that I am in. But I think that's because of the nature of what Jeff Keeley does. If you look at the fact that he puts on so many of these shows every year, I'm sure that he makes a lot of money off of being a consultant, uh, you know, throughout different industries because of where he's at within gaming, it's it's easier to understand why the man sits on a fence more times than not. And a lot of people have brought up, you know, to, to I remember we're tweeting on um, throughout last week when we were talking about this on Twitter, the fact that, you know, Jeff was so quick to condemn Konami for what they did with Kojima and a lot of people were like oh is it just 
Is it because your best friend Kojima is not involved in all this? Is that why you're not speaking up or talking about this? But I think at that point, Jeff condemning Konami was a very easy card to play, right? Konami had already shown that they really don't want anything to do with our gaming industry. It was a very easy card to play. Activision Blizzard is still a very large player. A lot of people uh, have brought up that, I don't remember the person's name or his position, but someone high up at, at Activision is part of the advisory board of the Game Awards. A lot of people brought up how it is a conflict of interest or maybe that person being on the board is the reason why Jeff Keighley is not is deciding not to speak up against Activision Blizzard. But the thing about it is that the Game Awards have been going on for about 8 years and every year without you know fault <laughs> every year there's been at least one usually multiple developers and publishers that we learn something really bad about <laughs> you know the 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 thing about it and i want to reiterate what jeff had said we have to excuse, uh, we have to think very carefully about how to proceed here that that we really should mean i <laughs> i have to think very carefully about how to proceed here i think that it's easy for us that don't have these massive platforms you know game awards right now uh the last game awards broadcast to over 80 million people um and with such a massive platform you do have to be careful about kind of once again the cards you play and the chess pieces that you move but i feel like it would have been very easy for him to address it within the show and who knows he might still you know say something maybe there is a segment in there that we don't know about obviously we're all talking about something that hasn't actually happened yet but i don't i actually agree with jeff Keeley where i don't think that the right move is for jeff to get up on a stage and say you know this year you know we found out about you know what, what has been happening at activision blizzard and we want to say that we support developers there's no place for blah 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 all that type of stuff right the issue is that Activision Blizzard is not alone when it comes to its treatment of women within this industry. It's just become kind of the big boss this year. You know, last year it was Ubisoft, you know, uh, the year before that it was Riot. You know, there's always a publisher and or developer where the, the you know, what they've swept on someone has lifted up the rug and we're able to see all the dirt that's underneath it there's not a company within the, our industry or that's hyperbolic to say that but there are not many how do i put this this is an issue that once again happens at a, a lot of different publishers and developers within our industry it is an issue with culture not just an issue that is being, excuse me, <laughs> I'm stumbling over this, but it's an issue that is happening at multiple publishers because of culture and because these issues are not being actively addressed within these companies 
with the intent of preventing them from ever happening. So instead of companies being active against harassment and the diminishment of input from women, female developers from around the world, this it's it's almost like instead of being active to prevent it, a lot of these companies are being reactive with it. And with that being said, there's no reason to just single out Activision Blizzard, especially because everything that we know about Activision Blizzard, we know about it. Obviously, the big thing was that lawsuit in California, but every pretty much everything else that we've heard and we know, uh, including the Washington Post article specifically about Bobby Kotick, has been um, stories that have been retold from employees through a journalist that decided to publish it online for us to read. That's really the fine line that Jeff Keeley has to walk, which is that lawsuit in California has not concluded, right? It's still an act of development. So it really just isn't a smart move for Jeff to stand up and condemn Activision Blizzard by name. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a way to do it. Now, Jeff followed this up, all this controversy happened on Twitter, by tweeting. Uh, he tweeted, beyond its nominations, I can confirm that Activision Blizzard will not be a part of this year's uh, The Game Awards. The Game Awards is a time of celebration for this industry, the biggest form of entertainment in the world. There is no place for abuse, harassment, or predatory practices in any company or any community. I also realize we have a big platform which can accelerate and inspire change. We're committed to that, but we all need to work together to build a better and a more inclusive environment so everyone feels safe to build the world's best games. All of us are accountable to this standard. Incredible games and the talented developers who build them are who we want to celebrate. See you on Thursday. So, as I said, the issues at Activision Blizzard, unfortunately, are not isolated within our industry. and. The one, not the one, I guess, one of the many gripes that I have about the Game Awards is that I feel that Jeff Keighley and the production team sometimes don't fully grasp the amount of influence that the Game Awards has. And in that tweet that he sent, he wrote, I also realize we have a big platform which can accelerate and inspire change. But based upon the history of the Game Awards, sometimes I do not think that Jeff and his team truly fully realize how big of a platform they have and the amount of influence they can have on millions of gamers simultaneously. Now, the Game Awards, this is going to be the eighth year of this particular format of the Game Awards. We're not counting those super weird Spike TV awards that used to happen. And every year, Jeff and his team have been able to double the amount of viewership, which with last year, I think it was like 86, 87 million around there. Obviously, lockdown, the pandemic, I think, led to a lot of that explosion. But I think it's easy to see why this year would surpass 100 million viewers. Whether it will be able to double it around 160 million, I don't know. 
But even being able to crack 100 million viewers simultaneously is a pretty amazing accomplishment. And the reason why they're able to do that is because Jeff understood what a lot of these other industries don't understand when it comes to their award shows, which is locking it to a single network makes zero sense. You're, you're, the goal should be to get as many people to watch that content as possible. And the Game Awards simulcasts in multiple languages in multiple countries at the same exact time. So they have a lot of partners in, in Asia, in, in Europe, obviously here in North America. In order to broadcast the Game Awards at the same exact time, and once again being localized in um, their language, in order to reach as many people as possible. Now, think about the amount, once again, the amount of influence you can have on gamers. If you were to take some time within the award show to every year dedicate on answering one question, which is if Jeff and his team every single year during the Game Awards will say to themselves, what is one negative aspect of our game industry that we feel we can ad address and be able to hopefully inspire change in the minds of over 100 million gamers that are going to be watching uh, our broadcast. Because let's be honest, if you are a casual gamer, you're not watching the Game Awards, right? The Game Awards are really for people that understand games, that really play games throughout the year. It's not for people that just play one or two games every year, right? These are people that consistently interact input and output within our industry. And if I was part of that team, I would always try my best to dedicate some sort of chunk of time, whether that's five, six minutes within this broadcast to answer that question, which is in this year, whatever year, you know, it's happening during the Game Awards, what is the one negative aspect or toxic aspect that is happening within our industry that we can address and hopefully inspire change. So if I'm Jeff Keighley and this team, I'm not stepping up on the stage and condemning Activision Blizzard. The reason why is because once again, Activision Blizzard does not stand alone. They're just the latest, once again, big bad that we're all focusing our energy on. You can't talk about Activision Blizzard and then omit what happened at Ubisoft. And it's unfortunate what's happening to the employees at Ubisoft because it sort of does feel like the new cycle of Activision Blizzard was like a tank that just ran over Ubisoft, which was like, hey, the abuse happening at Ubisoft, that used to be the flavor of the week. The new flavor of the week is Activision Blizzard. We're not talking about Ubisoft anymore, but those issues are still currently happening. Like, those weren't solved, right? Even though Riot went through their lawsuits and their settlements and forks arbitration was taken away, all this different stuff, I'm sure there are still issues happening at Riot Games. Once again, this is an industry-wide issue. So if you were to take, this, this is what I would have done if I was a producer at Game Awards. I would have taken six to seven minutes and it, it would have been a segment just highlighting the importance of women 
and their contributions to video games. Because I think that a lot of gamers and a lot of people that, um, you know, interact with this industry, if I did a word association with them, and I think even myself, it would probably happen to me just because of how much we're exposed to that image. If we did word association with a person that played video games and you said the word developer, or you said the word tester, or you said the word director, I think in your mind, the first thing that pops up is a white male, right? And if I was Jeff Keeling's team, I would have spoken up about the sort of the explosion of uh, news stories that we've heard broken about harassment and the treatment of women within not even just within, but also outside our industry, because it, it this is an issue that does still exist on forums, for example, in the way that not even just female developers, but the way that female gamers are treated, right? At that point, I would have turned the stage over and ran a video, just literally interviewing and talking to female developers, either about their experiences or highlighting female developers throughout gaming history that have contributed to a lot um, throughout games, whether it is specific art or mechanics or games like a lot of people, um, a lot of gamers, myself included, are not aware that um, various women or, or, or women created, just sort of giving those women that time and that space I think that that would have done volumes. And it's something that, once again, you don't need to call out names in order for everyone watching. Once again, we're, gamers are watching. We understand what's going on when we're watching this show. We're all going to know, well, he's obviously talking about Activision Blizzard. But it's also important that you, you, we're not just talking about a single company. Just This is an industry-wide issue. And I think this, the Game Awards could have done the same last year in highlighting developers of color. I think that, you know, I would work, I would sit down at the table, with, you know, a bunch of smart people and brainstorm, hey, is there anything we can do in this show in order to help players rethink um, game console tribalism and, and these console wars? Is there any way that we can coax people towards understanding that this is dumb and it doesn't make any sense and it's just toxic, right? Um, the same could be said about addressing crunch in some way. I, I don't know. I, I feel like with this platform, there's a lot that can be done to persuade gamers within this industry to rethink the way that they look at this industry because i i do truly believe that a lot of people that love video games and interact with them daily still do not have a good grasp on how difficult it is to develop a video game and i think even small things like that showing gamers you know Let's, you know, let's have a conversation about how difficult it is to develop a game during a pandemic. That is something that gamers don't truly understand. And, you know, last week there was a little bit of the story about the Halo Infinite 
the Halo subreddit having to be locked down because of how toxic it became, death threats and all these different things against developers and, you know, people talking to developers and saying, oh, he wants a Slayer playlist. Like, how hard that can, can that be? And I think segments that show um, and we're able to hear from directors and developers of, of different games and show, let me tell you guys how difficult it is to, to, to do anything, to change anything, to implement anything within our industry because it's really not as easy as a lot of people think it is. I think stuff like that would create a massive change within our industry because once again, there is not a single, not a single segment. There's not a single moment throughout every calendar year where we are able to get 100 million people who to play who play video games to sit down and watch the same exact thing. And it's become unfortunate that it feels like the Game Awards have been taken over by the ads. And let's make it very clear here. When you show up for the Game Awards this week and you're getting excited to see footage for the Dead Space remaster or whatever, or games that are being announced, those are commercials. Jeff Keighley and his team, they sell those minutes as space. So when Xbox said, hey, we want three, four minutes to announce the Xbox Series X back in, you know, was that 2019? It's not like Jeff says, cool, we're going to give you guys five minutes. It's like, yeah, you guys can have five minutes. It's going to be, you know, $3 million or however much it is. And obviously that's what pays for the show. That's also why there's really no traditional advertising. I think sometimes we have the typical gaming commercials of junk food and all this garbage. They always try to sell people who play video games, which I think is uh, another topic that should be addressed. But you know, it's unfortunate that the, the the trailers have overtaken what I feel should be an opportunity to change a lot of hearts and minds when you have this many people watching the same thing. Now, let's move on to Battlefield 2042. Last week, GameSpot reported that EA is internally restructuring to create a connected universe of projects set in the Battlefield universe. Respawn Entertainment co-founder and CEO Vince Zampella will now oversee all Battlefield development. Vince Zampel told GameSpot, quote, we will continue to evolve and grow Battlefield 2042 and we'll explore new kinds of experiences and business models along the way that we can add to that foundation to provide an awesome array of experiences for our players. In this universe, the world is interconnected with shared characters and narrative. This universe is also built with our community as we harness the power of portal and user-generated content that puts creativity in the hands of our players. For more Former Halo designer Marcus Leto will lead a new, currently unnamed EA subsidiary in Seattle, Washington, with the goal of introducing more narrative to the franchise. On the surface, um, I feel like this sounds really great, but um, it's hard for me to comment on this because I definitely am not an active player in the Battlefield universe. I... My time with Battlefield was really like when the when the franchise was first first introduced. You know, traditionally a lot of my time 
being that was spent as a PC player was World War II shooters. I loved them. I just love the shooter era in terms of campaign and even multiplayer of World War II. One of my favorite sounds in the world, all history of is is the M1 Garand clip being ejected, right? That's like a permanent sound in my brain from playing Medal of Honor, Allied Assault, the original Call of Duty, Call of Duty 2, playing a lot of those online and multiplayer. And Battlefield was a part of that because when Battlefield was first introduced, it really was the first of its kind. It was the first time that it really took war and the term of, you know, just right the absolute name, the term of a battlefield, and try to put it into a video game where, you know, the fact that you had tanks and it felt like it was just a much more open area and freedom. That was really a lot of my time with Battlefield. Once Battlefield started changing, started modernizing, um, I just didn't like it anymore. I'm more of a person when I think about multiplayer games and shooters, I really love a more intimate sort of of setting, something closer to Halo Infinite, something closer to a Call of Duty, something closer to an Overwatch, which is still my, my current favorite multiplayer game. Um, I like the intimacy of just 4v4, boots on the ground, nothing crazy with vehicles and all that stuff. I'm just not really a big fan of it. On the surface, to me, this sounds like a bad idea. And the reason, I, I guess bad idea is not the way that I uh, like to put it, but I think it's a very short-sighted way to think of expanding the quote-unquote battlefield universe. I don't think that there's really a need to have a sort of a narrative connected tissue to Battlefield. I think what EA needs most with Battlefield is to look at the history of Battlefield and start to ask the question, when was Battlefield great? Like when was Battlefield at the apex, at the top? And Battlefield really was at the top back when it was in the World War II era and obviously before Call of Duty Modern Warfare. When Modern Warfare came out, it really revolutionized. The reason why it revolutionized multiplayer is because once again, it, it kind of went back down to that intimate setting, took away these large battlefields, took away the tanks and all that stuff. And it made um, the act of, shooting within a multiplayer game and just the pace of a lot of those multiplayer matches, they just did a better job at, at sort of giving gamers something that they were sorely missing, which was a Twitch shooter, something that moved a lot faster, not as fast as an arena shooter, but it, it you know, the time to kill was drastically dropped down where you can wipe out multiple enemies very, very quickly. It was just a very saddest... It, there was a lot of satisfaction that came through when you played something like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, as opposed to a lot of the shooters that preceded it. And Battlefield continued trying to just keep on with sort of Battlefield. But when you think about the best moment of that intellectual property, a lot of people bring up Battlefield Bad Company, 
And I would also like to bring up Battlefield Heroes. And I feel like this is the direction that EA should be heading towards, is that Battlefield is sort of in this weird moment as a franchise where, how do I put this? It's almost like they don't really know exactly what they want to deliver. It's like they want to keep traditional Battlefield players happy while trying to make changes and pigeonhole the game into this like within these walls that will capture more Call of Duty gamers when I think the way to go is to really leave Battlefield to Battlefield you know like keeping it the traditional way that we've always seen Battlefield and then using that intellectual property to spin off and create experiences that are nothing like Battlefield. In my opinion, these projects should not be connected. In my opinion, they should be completely separated. That's how we got the amazing game that is Bad Company. If you have Game Pass, I'm pretty sure you do have access to the first two Bad Companies. And it was just a really fun single-player narrative with these it, it was written really well. You had, you were in this uh, war with these really likable characters. And it just worked for what it was. And that's sort of what I would do with Battlefield. I I think that a lot of these companies sort of try to toe the line between what they think is tactical realism and then what a lot of gamers would consider as fun, which is weird because Battlefield was in the news last week because they announced some sort of Santa skin. And apparently a lot of Battlefield players said that it would ruin the realism of the game and all this garbage, and all this weird stuff. I'm like, dude, you're jumping out of a helicopter on a wingsuit to throw C4 at a jet blow it up in, you know, midair and then be able to land right back into your own helicopter. Like there's in what world is battlefield tactical realism? It just, it, it, it absolutely just is not right. It just isn't. So it's almost like battlefield doesn't even understand their own player base where if you can get pressured that easily to say, okay, let's not put out this Santa skin and do something a little bit fun, it's almost like, well, do you really understand your player base then, especially if you're willing to just forego something that quickly? Um, so I, I think what EA really needs to do, and, and look, Vincent Pella is absolutely the man to do it, is number one, they have to identify what is Battlefield. What type of game are we trying to build here? Because you, you just, you can't do, I'm, I'm not going to say you can't do both, but if you are looking for a specific type of shooter player, you have to stick with that specific type of shooter player. And I think Battlefield would be successful if you are able to create multiple experiences where you have these big 128 player battles, but then you can also shrink it down onto, you know, 5v5 multiplayer matches on a much smaller map. I feel like that type of separation makes more sense 
than trying to do a world that's interconnected, shared characters, narrative. I really don't think that there's going to be a lot of value in doing something like that. I, I, I've said this um, for quite some time, which is that I think the one thing that these war shooters are missing is turning a single player narrative into Fast and the Furious franchise. Honestly, if I was in charge of this division, I would create a battlefield that was along the vein of Bad Company, something that's just fun and funny and doesn't take itself so seriously and has these gigantic, ridiculous set pieces, um, very similar to what you would see out of a film like Fast and the Furious, something weird, something different. I, I don't think the interconnected universe and shared characters and all that crap, I don't really think that that's really the way to go. But hopefully it gives, you know, the world a really good single player narrative, hopefully within the vein of Bad Company. And before I move on to the main story, I do wanted to quickly touch on Battlefield 2042. And the fact that it's, it seems like so many people are happy nowadays. A lot of players are happy with becoming what are essentially paid beta players with a lot of these releases that have, and I feel like it's really accelerated with our industry within the last few years where more and more companies are becoming comfortable with shipping games that they know are broken. They'll tell you that, oh, you know, like what happened with Rockstar when they released the Definitive Edition where they're like, oh, you know, we, we didn't know this was broken. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading stories about GTA Trilogy that says, you know, hey, here's a new patch that fixed more than 100 bugs and the same happening with Battlefield. Like, there's no way that you didn't know there were more than 100 bugs existing within this game. And it's weird to see, like I had retweeted something on my Twitter last week, or I think it was yesterday or a few days ago, about someone telling Battlefield players like, hey guys, you know, make sure you're reporting more of these bugs. You guys are basically, you know, Battlefield players are basically QA now. The more bugs you um, report, the faster they can get fixed. And I'm like, why are you guys glorifying this? Why are you happy as players to pay 70, remember this is $70 if you, own uh you know a ps5 or xbox series x you're paying at least 60 dollars to play this game and you bought a game that is multiplayer only and i was watching people play it i'm like man this game is really buggy it's not like something that is sudden something that happens once every 15 matches that you can laugh at it's like every single game there are these weird visual glitches I remember watching a video of someone where if a smoke grenade is thrown, you can pause a game, go into a menu, and then it causes the smoke to just completely disappear. A lot of these weird bugs. And let me tell you guys something that, you know, that QA team is probably very, very good at their job. And it's that that's usually what happens, unfortunately, with these companies that use post launch updates, they're using them very much more as a crutch more so than the way that it was originally intended right so when i look at people uh, 
you know, judge and insult companies like Grove Street Games, which was a developer in NGT Trilogy, but specifically pointing out their QA team, like, oh, your QA team would suck. Yeah, that's not really the way that these things work. Their QA team is phenomenal. Um, there's no way that they didn't encounter the same bugs that um, you guys are when you're buying the game. The problem was that the people at the top said, no, it's fine. It doesn't matter how many bugs we've encountered. We're just going to ship it. People are going to buy it. Um, because this game is digital only, and I'm talking specifically about GTA Trilogy, this is game is digital only. It's a lot more difficult for them to get their refunds. We're going to be able to keep our money. And then they'll have no choice but to wait for us to fix it. And I think it's just, I think it's something that we need to be a lot more vocal about within the industry about pushing back against this practice that has become inherently normal for players to purchase a game and sort of just play through the issues and um, just kind of be okay with dropping $60 for a product um, that just doesn't work at launch. And if this was a regular practice that, you know, it's, it, this would be a different conversation, but it's not, right? When I think of a company like Nintendo or even PlayStation, right? Um, when they put out a piece of first-party content, I'm definitely not expecting bugs and crashes and rampant issues in the way that we've seen recently with a lot of these big games that are asking for so much money. Battlefield 2042, Cyberpunk, GTA Trilogy, just to name a few. When you look at something like Metroid Dread, for example, from Nintendo, that's a game that you don't encounter that. You're not going to have bugs and glitches because the game was finished before it was shipped. And I think there was like one game-breaking bug that was found, and it was fixed within, I think, a week of it being discovered. So that's proof that companies can ship completed games. It's just as more and more gamers do what they're doing with Battlefield 22 and the GTA Trilogy Definitive Edition, where they're telling companies, hey, we're comfortable with this, you know, what you're signaling to companies is that, hey, look at how many sales we made. People are still playing Battlefield 2042, even though it's 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 in a broken state. Um, yeah, we're just going to continue doing this. You're, you're, remember, you're voting with your wallet. You're telling these companies that what they're doing is okay. So our main story of the week deals with uh, what I'm calling PlayStation Plus Plus. So last week, Bloomberg released a report detailing PlayStation's answer to Game Pass. Now, according to people familiar with Sony's plans and documents reviewed by Bloomberg, the service, which is currently codenamed Spartacus, will allow PlayStation owners to pay a monthly fee for access to a catalog of modern and classic games. It's expected to launch next spring, and it will merge PlayStation Plus and PlayStation Now under sort of one umbrella. Now, this is a no-brainer decision. I actually had to look back and I wanted to find where was the episode where I talked about this is definitely what PlayStation is going to do. And it was an episode called the Game Pass Effect. And I think it was like episode 50 something or something like that. I don't remember exactly when it came out. But that was the name of the Camp Koji episode where I talked about if PlayStation 
wants to have a subscription service similar to what Xbox is doing with Game Pass, the smartest thing to do would be to get rid of PlayStation Now and absorb that service into PlayStation Plus. So it looks like that's exactly what they're doing here. Um, as I said, it's a no-brainer decision. PlayStation Now has actually been on the market for over six years, which sounds kind of ridiculous. Like, oh man, it's actually been out for that long. But PlayStation Now has just a little over 2 million subscribers, which is really bad. Game Pass, on the other hand, surpassed 20 million in just you know a little over four years. And um, sometimes a lot of people forget that PlayStation, with PlayStation Now, they, they really had what you can consider first mover advantage when it comes to this type of subscription service. It's like PlayStation was first to uh, sort of create this, hey, pay one fee, get access to a bunch of content um, sort of service as opposed to what Game Pass did. Obviously, the difference in terms of why Game Pass is so much more successful is definitely marketing. You know, Xbox has put way more marketing money into Game Pass. Um, and Xbox uh, created what will be considered a proper burn rate for Game Pass, which means that when this service was first pitched and introduced to Microsoft, Xbox basically, the Xbox team told Microsoft, this is how many years um, we think it will take before Game Pass is successful and or profitable. And that's when you set up what's called a burn rate when it comes to the execution of a product or a new service within your company. Basically, you set up these expectations of this is the amount of money we're going to lose year one. This is the amount of money we're projecting to use year two, year three, we're hoping to break even year five. And then by year seven, we're hoping to get some sort of net profit out of it or something like that. PlayStation and Nintendo don't really work under, they don't really like this assumption. Outside of hardware, I don't think PlayStation or, or I guess their parent company, Sony, is comfortable with lose, losing money every year. They definitely don't have the Uncle uh, Scrooge type of vault that Microsoft has a, as a company in terms of being able to invest as much amount of money. That's really why PlayStation now failed. There wasn't a plan in place from Sony that said, we really want this to be successful. This is the amount of money that we're going to spend either on advertising or this is the amount of money that we're going to spend <clears throat> to work with publishers in order to bring their games over into our service. That's really why it was a failure. It was what I would consider a half measure from Sony. PlayStation Plus is very different on the other hand. PlayStation Plus is not something I would consider a service that is a half measure. PlayStation has invested a lot of money into the PlayStation Plus branding, into marketing it, into doing a lot of different things to increase the value of it. Sometimes it's small things like if you're a PlayStation Plus subscriber and you buy something from PlayStation.com, you have free shipping, right? Um, 
there are a lot of avenues in which they're willing to lose money in order to increase the amount of value given to subscribers. And we've noticed within the last two years that PlayStation has really, really increased the amount of value that PlayStation Plus subscribers get in terms of uh, free games that are given away as part of being a subscriber. It is, you know, miles ahead of what Xbox has done with games with gold. With PlayStation Plus, you get a lot of um, third-party releases that are brand new. Pretty much almost every month of this year, PlayStation Plus subscribers have gotten a free game that debuted that very month. You know, looking at Virtual Fighter Showdown, you're looking back as far as, you know, uh, Destruction All-Stars, um, Bug Snacks, the Oddworld game, you know, uh, and, and remember a lot of those are PlayStation 5 games. So PlayStation definitely invest a lot of money to PlayStation Plus. But once again, it's not really a loss. It's just PlayStation Plus has gotten to the amount of subscribers where, where PlayStation is willing to take a chunk of that profit and reinvest it into PlayStation Plus. So that's why, you know, you, you didn't see that early on with PlayStation Plus. Is that PlayStation is more about the bottom line. I, I, I need, I, I not, I guess need, I guess it's a want and a need. I need my profit now. But they've also chosen to reinvest that profit, which is very, very smart and you know, even something like the PlayStation Plus collection that they introduced with the PlayStation 5, which is if you're a PlayStation Plus subscriber, you have access. I think it's like 15 or 20 games free of charge, God of War, Bloodborne, a lot of these heavy hitters throughout PlayStation history. Um, so that's the amazing thing that PlayStation has done that I will praise them for is being able to reinvest that profit. But PS Now has not succeeded because there is no reinvestment of whatever little profit that they've done into PlayStation Now. I think that PlayStation overestimated how successful PlayStation Now would be. The problem is that there is no profit to reinvest and they're not willing to take a loss or, or um, uh, cut the budgets of other segments of PlayStation in order to... Um, increase and advertise PlayStation now. And so it looks like that's obviously starting to change. So according to Bloomberg, details on Spartacus may not be finalized, but documented but documentation review by them outlines a service with three tiers. Now the first would include existing PlayStation Plus benefits. So it looks like that's just the PlayStation Plus um I guess similar to what Xbox is doing on their end, Xbox technically does also have three tiers. You have Xbox Live, Gold, you have uh, Xbox Game Pass, and you have Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Now, so they're saying the first tier would just be uh, PlayStation Plus and what you're used to with PlayStation Plus. The second tier would offer a large catalog of PlayStation 4 and eventually PlayStation 5 games. So that tier would be closer to what we're seeing with Game Pass. You would pay, you know, right now PlayStation Plus is $60 a year. The base service of Game Pass is $10 a month, 
which comes out to um, hundred and twenty. I don't know why that took me so long. One hundred and twenty dollars a year. So, if this is true, then that means that this um, tier would probably be their ten dollar a month tier. If I'm not mistaken, that is the current price of PlayStation now. It is ten dollars a month. Now, the third tier would add extended game demos, game streaming, and a library of classic PS1, PS2, PS3, and PSP games. Now, that sort of makes me feel that since the second tier, theoretically, according to Bloomberg, would also include the benefits of PlayStation Plus, that means that we can expect a minimum of $15 a month for that secondary tier which would come out to $180 a year. That is tripling the price of PlayStation Plus. And I don't mean that to say as a negative. I mean that to say as a positive in terms of a, a new source of revenue for PlayStation. So I could see this tier becoming $15 a year, excuse me, $15 a month. If I am PlayStation, what I am doing is I am I, I I will introduce the service and I'm capturing players very early. Um, excuse me, let me rephrase that. I am introducing a lower price for signing up for a year in order to capture one-year commitments at launch. So if I am telling people this is $15 a month, I don't think the smart route from PlayStation is, and I definitely don't think they will do this, is to advertise in the same way that Microsoft did. Microsoft went crazy when they first introduced Game Pass Ultimate. It was like a dollar for three months. You could stack up like three years. Right now, that dollar deal still exists for new subscribers. Uh, I, I definitely don't see PlayStation doing this, and it's actually not smart for PlayStation to do it. What I would do is that if if I'm going to assume that this tier would be $15 a month, let's call this PlayStation Plus Plus, right? So you have PlayStation Plus, $60 a year, which comes out to five bucks a month. And then you will have PlayStation Plus Plus, which gives you PlayStation Plus and access to a large catalog of PS4 and PlayStation 5 games. That would be $15 a month. That comes out to $180 a year. Just right off the bat, I would say, hey, we're interested in this new service. It's $15 a month, um, but it will be $150 to commit for year one. So right off the bat, you're telling your most loyal PlayStation fans, hey, we know you guys are going to enjoy this. Commit to a year right now and save yourself 30 bucks. Like... <clears throat> In that way, you are getting an instant influx of expected income because you are um, you are locking in a lot of people and asking them to make that one-year commitment. That is a type of business model that Xbox didn't really go towards. Xbox Game Pass is still very much... You know, they think about it in terms of monthly, a monthly subscription. And I think what, what PlayStation can do in order to really bolster those subscriber numbers 
and really generate a lot of instant revenue is to encourage people to sign up for a year. And I would do that by lowering the price of committing to a year. So I think that's an amazing step that they can take. Because one thing to remember about this PlayStation service that will be very different from Xbox Game Pass is that there will never be sales. (laughs) The one thing that a lot of people forget about PlayStation is that PlayStation third party, uh, excuse me, not third party, but major retailers um, do not sell subscriptions for PlayStation services. And because of that, they are, uh, and the same goes for downloadable content. Um, you can't buy a digital game for PlayStation on Amazon. You have to go straight through PlayStation. Because of that, you can't do what a lot of Game Pass gamers do right now, which is, you know, Black Friday just a few weeks ago, you could get three months of Game Pass Ultimate for $25. Remember, one month is $15. So you're saving a good chunk of money. If you're a person that, loves Game Pass and knows you're going to be using it, you're buying a bunch of cards at $25 and you're stacking up like two, three years, you know, because you know, you know, next year you're going to have Deathloop coming to Game Pass because as we all know, that commitment was only for a year. So Deathloop will be launching at some point in October, 2022. You know, you're going to have Starfield in November. And that's outside of, you know, Hellblade 2 maybe comes out next year. And obviously that's outside of anything else that Xbox just hasn't announced yet, right? You're not going to have that with this PlayStation service. There won't be a point where you're going to get, you're going to be able to go to Amazon or Best Buy and buy three months of PlayStation Plus Plus at, you know, $25. So I think this is a good way for PlayStation to do something that won't, they really won't be able to do that. Gamers won't have access to a lowered price of entry into the service at any moment in time. So I think that a good strategy would be locking in that commitment to a year by lowering the price of, of buying it for a year. Um, so let's talk about what, what all this means. So number one, there is a 0% chance that this service will have new PlayStation published games day and date. And I think it will take a minimum one year post-launch before first-party games hit the service. And it's going to be a lot longer for their tentpole games. I don't think that these games are going to hit the service within one year. So Horizon, Forbidden, of us say Forbidden Dawn. Horizon Forbidden West launches next February. I don't think that this hits this. I'm gonna just I'm just gonna keep calling it plus plus. I think it's funny. I don't think it's gonna hit this plus plus service until February 2023 at the earliest. And I think it will only hit that service if it's drastically um, gone down in terms of sales. Because the the one thing that uh, actually, you know, before I talk about that, let me finish this thought. Um, I don't think, I actually agree with this assessment. I don't think PlayStation needs to put their first party games there day and date. And I don't think it would be very smart financially for them to do so. 
I think that um, Xbox had Xbox did this in terms of putting their game studio games there day and date, day one, making that commitment. Hey guys, every single game because they needed to do that. What a lot of people fail to uh, understand is that the financial commitment between putting Gears 5 on Game Pass day, day one and placing God of War Ragnarok on on this service day one are night and day. PlayStation is losing way more money than Xbox is losing by putting their IP on that service day one. It's just not, once again, historically, from what we know about PlayStation, they're not really the type of company that they're, they're a lot smarter with their financial decisions because they have to be. They can't just burn money and lose money on these services and hope that in five, six, seven years they can turn a profit. They just can't operate that way. It's not the way that Sony uh, is built in comparison to Microsoft. They have to be a lot smarter. And putting their first party hits their day one is just not a smart decision from them. Uh, when we're talking about, think about in the year 2022, when theoretically this will launch, um, you're thinking about God of War Ragnarok being there, Forbidden West being there, um, you know, maybe, is Spider-Man set for next year? I think they put a date. No, that was 2023, I believe. Um, let's say Naughty Dog's next game is slated for next the end of next year. That's a lot of money that you're looking to lose year one by putting these games on there immediately. The other reason why I think that is going to be a minimum of one year of a wait is because PlayStation can't do with this new service. They can't do what they used to do with PlayStation now which is you can't put a game on this service that you yourself have published temporarily. Once you add a game to the service, it has to be there forever. This is something that Sony currently does with PlayStation Now that with this new service, they just can't do anymore. The Last of Us Part 2 is currently on PlayStation Now, but it is leaving that service in January 2022. You can't do that with this new service. You can't in February 2023 say, hey, Horizon Forbidden uh, West is coming to PlayStation Plus Plus. Make sure you play it because it's leaving September 2023. You, you can't do that. You're, they're going to continue doing that with third parties because that's the way that these contracts are put together in the same way that Game Pass works. You know, When a game introdu is introduced to Game Pass, Usually the time it's on Game Pass is either three, six months or a one year commitment. Usually we've been seeing now that a lot more companies are committing to one year. At that point when the one year is about to expire, then it's up to that publisher and Xbox to decide whether they want to renew the contract and come up with something more. Maybe at that point, the publisher has a little bit more leverage. They can say, hey, we want this game to continue under the service but this is how much of a percentage we want. We want this much more money for it to continue on the service. And obviously Xbox has the uh, right to say, no, at that, at, 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 you know, at that rate, we don't want this game back on the service, right? 
PlayStation can't do that anymore. So it just wouldn't make any sense for them to cannibalize their retail sales of God of War Ragnarok by putting that on PlayStation Plus Plus within six months. That's why it has to be a minimum of a year. And remember, this is just a theory. It could be completely different. They could surprise us next year and say, hey, every PlayStation 5 game is coming day and date. As I said, I don't think that's going to happen. And from a business perspective, it just makes no sense, right? Um, so PlayStation really does need to find that uh, balance that works for them in terms of when does this game hit this service because now they have to understand that once this game comes to this new service, we can't take it away. It just wouldn't make any sense. Now, the one issue that I have with this leak is that third tier of service. If there is a third tier that we can theoretically, um, not theoretically, I guess, but uh, make this educated guess that that tier would be $20 a month. That would make it $240 a year, um, which is quite the commitment. Now, what you're getting for an extra $5 a year primarily is that library of classic PlayStation 1, 2, 3, and PSP games. But before I touch on that, let's talk about these other two things, which is the third tier would add extended demos and game streaming. Um, extended demos makes no sense being locked behind a paywall. It, it, it just doesn't. Extended demos should be free for all PlayStation owners. You know, all an extended demo does is increase the chances of securing a sale while simultaneously risking the chance that someone will play it, not like it, and just not buy your game. But creating demos, especially extended demos, is a great way for publishers and developers alike to, once again, increase the chances that someone is going to pick up their game. This is something that should not be locked behind a paywall. It just doesn't make any sense. It's definitely not a feature that if you're thinking, let's say going theoretically, tier two is 15, third tier is $20 a month. You're not going to sit there with the PlayStation controller in your hand and think, man, should I go for tier two or tier three? And you're not going to sit there and say, man, you know what? I'm going to go with tier three because it has extended demos. That's worth the extra. Free. It's not really a feature that is going to cause a, a price movement. It's just not. Streaming is another thing that I find weird being locked behind an extra paywall. And the reason why is that maybe this is something, you know, uh, PlayStation is trying to get the analytics correct. Maybe it's something that they don't feel uh, would be profitable. They activate streaming for all of the games, every single game that they put in on the service. Maybe it just would be too much money to offer streaming kind of for everyone. Maybe it's just something. Um, from a technical perspective that they don't feel that they can handle right now. And it's something that will change later. But at some point, streaming has to be available across the board because streaming is once again, another thing that going into the future of the way that we consume video games is not something that should be locked behind an extra paywall because streaming is essentially just a delivery system. 
It should never be viewed, let me not use the word never, but in the future of the way that we cons- are, are going to consume games, which is we're going to put software before hardware, streaming is nothing but a delivery system. At some point, PlayStation is going to have to understand that this is not, this should not be something that uh, people should be paying extra for. This, this needs to be a, uh, a service that is included and uh, for every PlayStation user. So once again, the differences between PlayStation and Xbox is that Xbox understands that, hey, streaming is the future. We have this amazing infrastructure already built because of the Azure technology. And if they're losing on the bottom line when it comes to streaming in terms of maintaining those servers, they're okay with it because they want to be the market leader. It's almost like a loss leader for them. Remember on Xbox, you can stream. uh, Actually, I'm not sure if they already activated it, but at some point you'll be able to stream your Xbox anywhere in the world. So whatever's in your disk drive, you'll be able to play it. Right now you can stream. I can turn on my Xbox Series X and I can look at a Game Pass game and be able to instantly stream it without having to download it. Let's say I enjoy playing it. I can continue playing it while downloading and installing the game. Um, Obviously, you can stream Game Pass games on your phone, your laptop, through a a, a PC browser, right? It's not something extra that you're paying for. It's included in the service because it is literally just a delivery system. So I don't think that this is something that should be locked behind an extra paywall, but it's probably a necessary evil for PlayStation. It's probably something that will is is currently too costly for them to activate for every single game that they're adding to the service. It's probably just too much. And hopefully once the math makes sense, maybe they will open streaming to everything, which I think would be a good idea. That means that those extra $5, primarily in my opinion, are really for those legacy titles of one, two, three, and PSP games. And this is something I think is, it, once again, all if all this is true, this is the thing that I, this is the decision that I love the most about this PlayStation service. Separating the legacy titles from PS4 and PS5 titles is the smartest thing they could have done. It's an amazing move because those two player bases do not cross over often. I think the gamers that will be excited about um, a library of classic PS1, 2, 3, and PSP games don't aren't the same people that are excited about current games hitting this service, PS4 and PS5 games. Sometimes you have both, but it's not enough of a crossover where you're going to have fans that are excited about paying pay, excuse me paying for a service that is adding older games right because if they were to mix all of these together let's say there was no third tier and the second tier of this service would be game pass but PlayStation 1 2 3 4 5 games and PSP the issue that you run into if they were to do something like that is if I'm a gamer that only 
is here exclusively for the latest games, PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 games being added to the library, first and third party or whatever. Um, I'm not going to be happy if during a month, one week, you know, you talk about all these great games being added to the service, and then all of a sudden, another week in the month, you're saying, hey, we're adding uh, these 10 games to the service, but they're all really old games. It, it's almost like I'm going to feel like I'm not getting my value back. You know, I'm going to feel like I'm not paying to play these old games. I'm paying to play current ones. And I think that out of those two player bases, uh, gamers that want access to classic legacy experiences are more than ready and willing to pay that extra $5 um, in order to do it because of how difficult it is to access these older games when it comes to the year 2021. So I think it's a very, very smart decision because that was one of the major weaknesses with PlayStation Now. PlayStation Now's library is like 800 games. It's it's it's, it's huge. It, it doubles the amount of games that you have a Game Pass. But by doing that, you forego what would be considered a much more curated experience. Because if you give gamers too much, it can be overwhelming. It's not like, hey, here's 800 games, so we have access to better value than Game Pass. Because a lot of those games are older games, much smaller games that most people have never even heard of in their life. And it's much better to keep that uh, separate. And hopefully... Game, uh, PlayStation has a um, an idea in mind in order to really deliver this stuff because whatever the UI for this service will be um, has to be absolutely robust because you're trying to access so many games at once. So this rumor and everything surrounding this service is why I love PlayStation. This is why I, I compare PlayStation to Apple a lot, which is that Apple is the type of company that is okay with sitting back and letting other companies innovate within a space because they know that, hey, we see that you introduce something new, a new subscription service, uh, you know, Xbox when they did achievements, for example, or Xbox with Xbox Live Gold and, and their direction with multiplayer, Xbox with crossplay, Xbox with um, you know, uh, Game Pass, obviously. Um, it's like PlayStation is okay with sitting back and just taking notes and learning. You know, it took PlayStation quite some time to enter into crossplay. Um, one way to look at it was very malicious. Like, you know, why don't why don't you want to play with others? Stop playing by yourself. But I think the way that PlayStation looked at it was very much from a, a business standpoint because once again, PlayStation has much more to lose than Xbox. They just don't have the war chest of money that Microsoft as a company does. They have to work smarter. So when you look at Crossplay and what we learned uh, about Fortnite that PlayStation charges a premium for crossplay because they bring up a very good point. If my players are primarily playing on PlayStation, but they buy something on a different platform, 
I should get the chunk of that revenue, not the other platform. It's actually something that makes a lot of sense from business standpoint. So what I love about PlayStation is that they arrived late to the party in very much a similar fashion as, as, as Apple, but they arrive in a way where they've allowed other companies to make all of the mistakes. And they're able to, to just sit back, watch and look. And then when they're ready to launch, it's perfect from day one, right? It, it, it just works from day one. Apple has not introduced a foldable phone they're allowing Samsung and even Microsoft with the service, uh, the Surface to go through all of the growing pains, go through the issues with the hinge. The tech is not really ready. You know, Samsung phones had a bunch of issues early on. And they're like, you know, once the technology is ready, we're going to take notes. We're going to learn from all the mistakes that you're making. By the time we launch, technology is going to be much more accessible. It's going to work better. It's going to be cheaper to manufacture. And then at that point, will introduce a foldable iPad. Right now, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense for us to do it. And that's where PlayStation is as, at, <clears throat> as a company, is that they'll look at Game Pass and they'll say, man, this is this going to work? This does, you know, this, I'm sure a lot of the executives look at Game Pass like, man, how can they make this work? And we're just gonna sit back and watch. Because when you look at PlayStation now, there's a moment of PlayStation not sitting back and watching, and they've only been able to generate 2 million subscribers in six years, which is really bad. That's bad for a subscription service across any field, right? But now with this new service, they're able to like a game pass and even meet with publishers and developers, maybe have conversations about how they feel about game pass and, and, and maybe what PlayStation could do better in terms of how to serve developers and publishers. And then here they go and they launch this service and you know they say to themselves, we're gonna make this successful from day one. We're gonna make it profitable from day one because we're not here to burn money, we're here to make money. And I think that's really where they're positioning themselves with this brand new service. And what I love about PlayStation finally um, moving into the surface, into the service, is that we as gamers win. Imagine if you own both of these platforms and you pay thirty dollars a month. It's still cheaper than, um, you know, it's still equivalent to buying one game every two months. And now you're gonna have access to hundreds and hundreds of experiences. I think that gamers here win. And I think our industry wins when PlayStation joins Xbox into trending towards what our future should be, which is putting games first and creating these delivery systems where we're able to introduce games into the living rooms of players simultaneously at the same exact time. So now if you're a third party and you're launching a game and you say to yourself, Maybe there's a multiplayer game. You say to yourself, man, I, I, I want to get this in, in, into the hands of as many gamers as possible at launch. Well, you have 20 million subscribers on Game Pass and who knows how many subscribers will sign up to the service day one. I could see I could see them surpassing a million signups within the first 48 hours as long as it's very robust. Uh, you know, at some point in the year 2028, you'll be able to launch a game across these two services. And who knows, you'll be able to surpass 
40 million players interacting with your product simultaneous, or obviously not every player is going to play it, but you have the potential of reaching 40 million gamers at the same exact time. This is absolutely exciting, this moment for our industry, this timing. As I said, this is not a moment for us to sit by and say, you know, which is going to be better, PlayStation Plus Plus or Game Pass? Because at the end of the day, the winner is the gamer. And I think, um, you know, this, like I said, it's just an exciting time. The one, uh, I don't want to say negative, but I guess one of the negatives that will happen when PlayStation starts to take this new service more and more seriously is that I think that what PlayStation is going to start doing is they're going to start locking up third-party contracts into six months exclusivity, and I could see them um, dropping it into uh, their service outside of, of, of Microsoft. It, it is going to be a little bit of PlayStation is going to say, yeah, we're not going to put our games there day one, but if I get into a moment where I can get something like a back for blood type of deal where I'm able to launch it day one on my service, uh, PlayStation is not going to sign the contract if it allows Xbox to also get that day one. I think I think PlayStation is going to be a lot more aggressive with their contracts where they're going to tell third parties, either we get it on our service for the first six months or we don't we don't do this contract. I think that they're not interested early on to have a back for blood or an outriders type of thing hit both services simultaneously day one. I think that they're going to be more interested in locking up third parties the way that they did with Deathloop and you know a lot of the deals that they tried to strike with Bethesda before it was purchased. Um, before we spoke in, a lot of these third-party deals um, that they're running to, I think they're going to be aggressive with taking away those experiences from ever hitting Game Pass. I think they're going to work very aggressively with doing that. Um, and uh, maybe they're going to put in their contract, like, hey, if you... If we bring Force Spoken to PlayStation Plus, well, maybe that's not a good example. I don't know if that's ever coming to GameStop, GameStop, GameSpot, GameSpot, Xbox. What the heck am I talking about? Um, so yeah, that's sort of the one thing that we're trending towards. Unfortunately, is like a, a different form of exclusivity. It's going to be exclusive uh, to these services, and these companies are going to be much more aggressive. So we are trending towards this this moment where it really is going to be like Netflix versus Disney plus in a sense, or Netflix versus HBO, I guess you could say, um, where these companies are really going to get really aggressive with making sure that their service has things and experiences that you can't get anywhere else. But either way, like I said, this is just exciting for the entire industry. And, um, you know, once again, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of have to see how this all plays out. This week's hot releases tomorrow, December 7th, Final Fantasy uh, 14, Endwalker, PC, PS4, PS5. December 8th, Sam and Max Beyond Time and Space Remastered, PC, Switch, Xbox One. You also have Halo Infinite, PC, Xbox One, Xbox Series X also coming to Game Pass. And then Loop Hero coming to Switch. Now it's time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. Last week, Nintendo updated a corporate governance document and expressed an intent to increase the proportion of women in managerial positions. Currently owning 23.7% of Nintendo Group's principal offices and 4.2% of NCO Japan management are women. 
Um, I think this is obviously a necessary um, objective for any company to go through. Uh, you know, sometimes when, when moments like these happen, we always have people that bring up the narrative of, oh, it shouldn't be about your gender. It shouldn't be about your race. It should be about who's the best employee. And I think a lot of people forget that diversity in and of itself is a skill set. Uh, because without diversity, we will be stuck with the same old boring white guy action protagonist for the rest of our lives. <laughs> diversity is a skill set that is a necessity in every single company, especially in a creative industry just like ours. You need to achieve a better balance. And by doing so, you're almost saying that there's, you know, no women or women of color, a person of colors that can reach up to the potential skill of a person uh, uh, of a white man within our industry. That's not really the way to look at it. The way to, the best way to look at it is once again, diversity is a skill set that every company should have. Last week, Nintendo announced that Paper Mario would be coming to Switch Online's expansion pack service on December 10th. It's the first Nintendo 64 game being added after the service launched two months ago. I'm actually happy to see that Nintendo's on brand. They're doing exactly what I said they were going to do. When I talked about this two months ago, uh, there's really no need to, for them to change their play. They're going to do one game every month or every two months. Some people were surprised. I have no idea why you're surprised by this. Anyone who was surprised tell them to listen to Camp Cozy because they would have already known this is exactly what they were going to do. This month's PlayStation Plus offering includes Godfall Challenger Edition, a stripped-down version of the game that locked the campaign and brings you up to max level to experience the end game. Now, Gear, Gearbox claims this is not a trial. Let me tell you guys, this is definitely a trial. I actually don't like that PlayStation allowed this game to be on PlayStation Plus because PlayStation Plus is a service that gamers are or subscribers are used to getting full-priced, full-sized games as part of it. And Godfall is sort of their... Um, how do I put this? It is the marquee title of this month's uh, offering of PlayStation Plus games. You know, Godfall Challenger Edition is the big graphic. And then Lego, I think it's Lego Batman Villains or something like that. And Mortal Shell are like the two small ones. Where this shouldn't be the big one. Mortal Shell then maybe should be the big uh, marquee title. This trial should be uh, the small one. Um I don't like Gearbox, and <laughs> I don't understand what they're trying to do with Godfall. Godfall was absolutely a failure. You guys making a $15 trial to try to get people back is a really just dumb decision. Um, and finally, a group of Democrats are introducing the Stopping Grinch Bots Act, a proposal aimed at preventing the use of retail bots from instantly claiming out online inventory. Look, this is an issue that is long overdue in order to be fixed. And uh, as I said in the past, this is something that retailers don't really feel the need to fix because they, retailers and manufacturers alike honestly just don't care. As long as they make their money, they just don't care what happens afterwards. Um, but bat, bots have definitely gotten out of hand, so hopefully something comes out of this. Uh, that's our show for this week. Shout out to Xbox. Halo Infinite reviews went up this morning, and it's looking like another solid release from Xbox Game Studios. And it pretty much caps off what is, you know, without argument, their greatest year of releases in a very, very long time. So uh, definitely 
a lot of praise for Xbox Game Studios and what they've been able to accomplish this year. Also, shout out to Titanfall. EA announced Titanfall servers will be getting shut down. Titanfall, definitely, if we're plotting a timeline of multiplayer shooters, Titanfall deserves its own dot on that timeline. Uh, it definitely changed shooters for the better. Um, and it's sad to see. Hopefully, we get another Titanfall in the future because that franchise definitely deserves uh, another game thank you so much for joining please follow us on twitter instagram and youtube at camp coaching for future updates um, once again i'm joel and i will see you all next week